Hello, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, always great to talk to you. Always. There's always something going on. Yeah, that's the world we live in. There's always something going on. A lot of it is very head scratching. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people got a lot of time on their hands to uh, to make up problems for themselves. Yeah, it's really is a first world issue. A lot of these, you know, it, it people go looking in jokes and in books and in movies and in tweets. They go looking for someone who's being victimized. They they try to find someone who's being beat on by the usually the most innocuous uh comments or by for example books which are meant to uh, inspire thought yeah challenge you things yeah which which books in schools should do and yet we hear that in uh kitchener waterloo area the cambridge uh school board is engaging in how do you how did it how did you phrase it to me Oh, the, the Waterloo Region District School Board is undertaking a multi-year review of its library collections to identify and remove any text deemed harmful to staff and students. Uh, this is so wrong in so many ways. It really reminds me of the book burnings that uh, went on uh, early in the last century. It's what kind of, first of all, who is determining harm? Who gets to determine what is causing harm for staff and students? By what me measurement are they using? And it will always be a subjective measurement. So this is not going to be anything authoritative. It's going to be what books bother you? You know, what, what books have challenged you and made you think things that made you upset? Uh, it's, it's turning school into pablum. And it's... It's disturbing to me that, that this policing of information, and usually that comes from the right, but this is coming from the left. Well, and, you know, people just have lost all sense of context and, and sort of historical development. I mean, I, I turned on, you know, because I'm old, I turned on uh, the, the, the Turner um, uh, Old Movies channel, you know, and I loved, you know, Turner Old Movies, all classics, and one was on, it was an Errol Flynn movie called The Santa Fe Trail, and it was all about uh, Jeb Stewart um, uh, going out and uh, chasing around John Brown, the abolitionist, and it was done in the 30s, and John Brown, you know, abolitionist now, I mean, obviously, the good guys, they're trying to abolish slavery. Uh, but in this movie, he's shown as this crazed, I mean, he was actually historically a bit nuts, uh, although, you know, pursuing a, a noble cause. But, you know, they they portrayed him in this movie as this, this crazy barn burning, uh, you know, um, revolutionary, not in a good way. And you look at it now, you go like, wow, is that ever out of step with current thinking and historic reality as well um because you know they have general you know um uh, robert e lee as a young officer there and he's considered kind of a a noble character it's all part of that early 30s when they're putting up all kinds of statues to uh, to confederate generals that they're now you know rightfully taking down but uh, you know you just 
but I, I can still watch it and go, okay, well, you know, Errol Flynn, who's got his own problems um, uh, as, as, a, as a person, um, I can still watch it and crit with a critical eye, you know, and understand that it's a product of its time. Um, but you know, a lot of people have just sort of lost that. So you can't look at anything anymore without uh, putting a, a real presentism on it and being, you know, and, and getting offended because people, 80 years ago didn't have the same social sensibilities that we have today. See, I like in movies like that to, you know, some homes, parents like to uh, put a kid up against a uh, doorframe and mark their height and yes. they continue to mark as they grow and leaves marks along the thing, which shows the progress as the child grows into young adult. I see movies like this as markers of where we were and a good illustration of how far we've come. It provides context for us, for those who think that uh, we haven't gone far enough, and I agree there's still distance to be made up. It's, I think, instructive to see how far we have come. And erasing our past, it, it, it doesn't... Oh, of course, the phone rings while this is happening. <laughs> well, you need you, your ducks cleaned. Yes. It, <laughs> Erasing or, it's, our or it's Rogers and Bell from a call center somewhere halfway around the world. Yeah, somewhere in, in, in India. Um, so say, well, say hi to them for me. Yeah, it's gonna have to, I'm just gonna have to let it get to the machine. There it goes. <laughs> Here we go. Um, it's uh, erasing our past does nothing to inform us of our present. It takes away our ability to judge progress. It, uh, I mean, even. I watch some shows, I have DVDs of some TV shows I watched back in like the 70s or the 80s. And there's some of them that still hold up, like the Rockford Files, one of my favorites. <laughs> but there are others that I watch and I cringe because I loved that show at the time, but it is terrible. And, but I'm able to look at it and recognize I've come a distance as far as my tastes and my perspective and my ability to judge material. And it's the same with, with books and so on that uh, may use terms that are out of date. Um, you just have to provide context to the, to the students. Kids are not stupid. This is the problem that this, this, whole prob this whole situation is wrapped in, is the idea that kids are so impressionable um, and so stupid that they can't properly contextualize a book written in like the 1800s um, or in the last century and recognize it was a different world then, as if reading Huckleberry Finn is going to cause them to revert to using certain language that they know is not acceptable today. Kids understand that this context of the past versus the present. And they're not so impressionable that one book is going to change. And don't you know, point to the crazies who use Catcher in the Rye as an as a inspiration to go out and uh, shoot a president or whatever. Um, it, the, the biggest influence to children is their home life. And if you provide the structure at home, they're able to properly contextualize books and recognize the, some protagonists are not heroes. They're simply the book, the, the character the book is focused on. Uh, I, I think that it, I, I kind of like 
cringing at old stuff because at the same time, it also made, I, I sometimes, I laugh. I look back at some of the ways we looked at the world and I laugh. It's kind of a dark comedy laugh, but I laugh as how did we ever think this was okay? You know, and, and it, it's a good head scratcher for me. How, how did we, who, are, who were decent people back then, how did decent people not know that this was a problem? But I like being able to look back and question that because then it allows me to apply it to what are the things we think today are okay that in the future might be seen as not acceptable? And using that as a jumping off point for, some, for a thought exercise, you know, the uh, Ottawa Carleton School Board removed Lord of the Flies from its curriculum uh, not long ago because they said that it agreed with a student that the book was outdated and focused too much on white male power structures. And if that's all you got from Lord of the Flies, you were not properly instructed and your frame of reference going into it um, was not the kind you need when going into reading literature. No, exactly. And, you know, and other books like to, to kill, uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird or uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale, uh, you know, they've been, they've been pulled from school cur uh, curriculums and libraries uh, in Canada um, because, you know, they made people uncomfortable. And part of the purpose of books like that and Lord of the Flies are to make you uncomfortable, to make you think about hard truths and the human condition. And to, you know, not every story is uplifting. Not every story has the good guy winning. You know, not every story, you know, again, has modern sensibilities where people are, are uh, you know, misgendered or you know, any of the other sorts of portrayals of, of whether it's ethnic minorities or religious or whatever. Some of these things are made to make you think and make you, let me say, make you uncomfortable about the world as it was at the time they were writing these things. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is a great example of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's about racism. Um, and, uh, you know, and it really was a mirror to the, to the old American South. Not that old, actually, because, you know, this was, this is, was and still is going on in uh, parts of the United States. So the, the whole idea that we have to keep people away from harmful, you know, emotionally fraught things uh, you know, there's a proper age for all these sorts of things. But as soon as you reach an age where you can, you you get have, uh, you're able to critique things and uh, pull them apart and, and understand them. I mean, they are basically, you know, any good English course is to hold up a book as a a, uh, a catalyst for discussions around these issues. And it's not like we're saying like, oh, well, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, you know, uses the N-word and portrays, you know, Black people as subservient and victims. It's like, well, in those, in a lot of circumstances at that time, that was exactly the way the world was working. And like you said, it shows us how bad the world can be and you know hopefully that uh, you know, it inspires us to not want to be that way again you know the same with lord of the flies uh, you know not one of my favorite books but you know it, there's there's a lesson there and you know it, and there is a real life story actually the real life story of lord of the flies was a, a group of um, south pacific islanders uh, children from a school who stole a boat and and got lost at sea and and lived on an island for for quite a while 
and they actually put together a workable society that wasn't Lord of the Flies like at all. But again, Lord of the Flies was a story to tell us about you know the 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 innate savage savagery in in human nature that uh, you know we've been str- struggling to overcome through you know a couple couple thousand years of our history yeah uh, you know the thing about uh, to kill a mockingbird is in its depiction of black people as subservient um and lesser it helps people who are not black to understand the, um, I can't, I don't want to use the word rage because it's so stereotypical, but to, to understand the underpinnings of the movements like Black Lives Matter and so on, when you see and read how Blacks were typically treated and it was just normal, you get a sense of why they're mad you get a sense that their their anger is justified. Otherwise, you could be left thinking, oh, things aren't so bad for you now. I mean, which isn't which isn't true, and that's a very privileged position to take. But it really provides, as I said before, a context for understanding where uh, black civil rights groups are today and what they're upset about. It that history is important. And it's important for us to know. And really, education should be about taking us out of our comfort zone. If education is going to keep us in our comfort zone, we learn nothing. And we're in an age now where anybody who is out of their comfort zone screams foul. How you know it's like they've been pushed out into the winter with no clothes. They, how dare you challenge me with something? How dare you present me with something? which does not completely conform and align with my present values. How dare you show me people who don't conform and align to my present values? They, it's as if speaking it and reading it is going to cause it to reoccur or something like that. Um, you know, people are going to read To Kill a Mockingbird and say, hey, you know, it was a good idea how we treated black people back then. It's, and, and this is not, and of course, it's all a, mat- a matter of how you teach things and what your home life is like and your, your community culture. But these are, these are necessities in education. We need to question our values. We need to question our suppositions and our uh, presumptions of how the world works and how it works for different groups. We need to be made uncomfortable because only when we're made uncomfortable Will we do something to create a greater sense of comfort, which means if we were uncomfortable by certain injustices, well, the way to make us more comfortable is to act to get rid of those injustices. If you're not shown uh, reasons to be uncomfortable, you don't do anything. And this whole business of hunting down books that could be of harm to students and staff this is a witch hunt. It's a book burning witch hunt. And I'm sure they're going to come back with some absurd books that, they're, that, that bother people. You know what? Welcome to the world. You're going to be bothered. You're going to see yeah. things that bother you. You're going to see things that upset you. You're going to have to deal with things which bother you and upset you. You're going to have to learn to deal with these things, contextualize them in your life and move forward. 
or use them as a launching pad for a new direction, for having your eyes opened and wanting to take action. You can't live in a world wrapped in bubble wrap. It's, this is not preparing kids for the future, giving them the idea that they can go out into a world where all they have to do is be an activist and say they don't like something and something's removed from, from circulation. That's not the world. No, and you know, and we talked about this. Oh, it's got to be uh, about a year and a half ago now, if you remember the old, the Dr. Seuss con- uh, controversy. Yes, where uh, the uh, the the literary agents for Dr. Seuss said, I think it was five of of his books that were written in you know between the 1940s and the 1960s uh, that they had depictions in them of uh and particularly black and chinese people um that were unflattering but you know but they were you know they were cartoonish stereotypes um not meant necessarily to hurt but they were products of the time and you know and it's easy to say that as a white person that's like yeah what's you know what what's the big deal but you know they they took them out because they said you know people grow up times are different and uh, you know these aren't appropriate anymore. But and that's very, are, but, but, but that's, a, but that's different. A, that's a big difference from from literature, which is telling you a different, a completely different kind of story. Yeah, the the thing about the the Dr. Seuss books is one of the underlying the- reasons for removing them from publication is they weren't selling. And you're when you're running a business, what is the purpose of continuing to put out a product no one's buying? So, you know, the world had moved on, and these books didn't move with it. Nobody, there was no demand for these books. Publishers delist books all the time from their publication schedule. It has to do with how many people are accessing this, how many people want to buy it. And those books just happen to be very, very poor sellers. Yeah. And, and, the, and the other thing too, is the audience for those books, I mean, they're children's books. And, you know, at the age that, uh, you know, parents are reading those to kids, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, kids don't have the critical ability to realize that they are cartoonish stereotypes and don't necessarily, and, and they don't reflect, uh, you know, the reality of, of black people and Chinese people or, or whoever else is depicted in these books. So, you know, it's an audience that doesn't have the critical facilities. You know, you and I can look at them and look at them and go and, you know, there's no way that it would influence the way we feel about different ethnic groups because we've got a, a, a bank of knowledge and experience and, and critical abilities to look at it and go like, ah, product of its time. Whereas, you know, if you're reading this to a three-year-old, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest it's, it's particularly harmful and it's going to, you know, lead to a lifetime of burning crosses on people's lawns. But, you know, the kids don't have the ability to differentiate between, you know, a, a cartoonish de- uh, depiction of, of a minority group and, and the reality of the world out there. So, you know, you know I, th- I think both things, like I say, it wasn't, it wasn't making any, any money for them, but also, like I say, the audience was, you know, didn't have the intellectual wherewithal to be able to 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 process it in a way that you know today if you have a, a group of grade nine uh, in, uh english students uh, who are reading uh, oh god i think in grade nine we read surfacing by uh or margaret atford um you know any you know any challenging kinds of books you know we're reading shakespeare in grade nine um if you're reading that sort of thing to be able to say okay what did we just read 
what was Shakespeare thinking about? What were what was going on at the time when he was writing this sort of thing? You know, when you're reading Othello, say, well, let's talk about the Moors and their influence on history. Let's talk about you know uh, blackness at the uh, at the uh, uh, at the English court of uh, of uh, Elizabeth. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can kind of contextualize these sorts of things if you have. The, you know, the intellectual wherewithal and, and someone who can guide you through it so you don't come to the wrong conclusions, which is, you know, black people bad. Um, there's, you know, because there, there are so many layers and the stories about so many other things. Yeah, it's, I'm wondering, when is the pendulum going to start swinging the other way? When are we going to start swinging back towards more liberalized uh, freedom of thought? and freedom of expression, because I keep waiting for it to be too much, you know, waiting for the hill for people to die, to die on. And getting rid of Lord of the Flies because it focuses too much on a white male power structure, that is not what that book is about. It does not matter what ethnicity or skin color these characters are. And it, it it's a book about humanity. It's a book about uh, innate humanity. It's a book about that, that postulates a certain inner human that uh, comes out when rules are taken away. It's a good treatise on human nature. And human is white, it is black, it is Asian, it is, it is everything under the sun. Because the fact is that all of us are motivated by the same things, you know, our, our basic motivations are identical. And so even though the characters in this book are ostensibly white, though they don't need to be, and I don't think the book ever says they're white, it's just assumed they are because they're British of a certain time. But just because there's an assumption that these characters are white, that does not wash away the impact and effect of that book. I've seen i've used lord of the flies to describe situations in my life I, that was a that was a book that i feel um you know you said not one of your favorite books uh but i feel that's a book that provided me with a lens a potential lens at looking at things uh as the world goes on that and animal farm is probably for me the most the, the book that i have seen repeated most often in human interactions in my life you know, the, the, the lessons of George Orwell's Animal Farm. And these, to, to look at the color of the character's skin in a story that has nothing to do with race is missing the point by a hundred miles. And for educators, to educators, it's one thing for a student advocate. They, listen, the truth is when you're in junior high school, even high school, the truth is you really don't know shit from Shinola. And I thought I knew everything back then. I thought that I understood the world. I didn't know anything. You know, you get older, you realize when you thought you knew everything, you didn't know anything. The, it's one thing for students without a proper, uh, you know, life experience framework to judge something in a very one dimensional manner. But for educators, to agree and to submit themselves to the opinion of one student who took something from a book that is not what the book is about 
this is disturbing to me. And, uh, you know, when is it going to stop? When are people going to say, okay, enough? Yeah, it's, well, it, it, we are living in, in, in a, a society where everyone is, is walking on eggshells all the time because, you know, you're afraid that you may, uh, you know, misgender someone or use the wrong pronoun. And, uh, and it's, you know, my, my philosophy has always been, is somebody trying to insult you? Are they trying to make you feel bad? Did they use your language in order to make you feel bad? Um, what was the intent behind what they said? And, you know, and I fully recognize that there are all kinds of things that are ingrained in us that we don't find offensive or we don't think is offensive, but somebody else is offended. You know, Stephen Fry, the great uh, British comedian said, you know, that, you know there, there is no right to not be offended. Um, you know, there are things out there that will offend you. And, you know, the, you know I, I love British comedy. And I've been introducing my uh, my son, who's who's 19, to British comedy. Uh, you know things like Little Britain and, and 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 other things. And the British, they they certainly have a different sensibility than we do in in certainly in Canada, because they cross the boundary all the time. They are the 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 kings and queens of uncomfortable humor when it comes to dressing up. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take much for, for uh, you know, a British comedian to uh, to put on a dress and, and play a woman. They've been doing it since, you know, before Shakespeare. Um, but, you know, but the, the things that they touch, and again, you know, they're holding up society to to a, an uncomfortable mirror. Like, you know, like we started off, you know, Lord of the Flies is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. You know, the, um, you know, the, the Kill a Mockingbird is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. And the British have been great at using humor to make you feel uncomfortable about social situations, stereotypes. Um, the British are all about class differences. And, you know, there are always those comedians. I mean, we always knew somebody in high school who were the, the shock comedians. They said stuff simply because it was offensive. There wasn't a point to it. They just wanted to get a laugh because they were going to use an offensive word or language or phrase or gesture or something simply because that was the only way that they could get a laugh or, or get you talking to them. Yeah, or get, get a reaction, provoke yeah, it, some it just, reaction. And, you know, and there's been shock uh, comedians, uh, you know, all through, you know, Andrew Dice Clay and people like that who were just, just vulgar for the sake of vulgar. And they found an audience because there are people who just thought being vulgar for the sake of being vulgar is, is, is funny. I like clever humor. Um, if something is clever, even if it's edgy uh, or, or uncomfortable, I, I think the humor of it trumps whatever un uncomfort uh, uh, that you feel as a result of it. And I say, and the British are, are, are great at that and showing some of these things to my son who has grown up in a very inclusive and sensitive and, oh, you better not go there or say that kind of, um, kind of um, education system. He sees this kind of stuff and goes like, dad, should we be laughing at this? I'm like, well, let's, let's deconstruct it. Let's talk about it. Why, why is it funny? Why is it uncomfortable? What's it telling us um, about, about society? You know, are they making fun of black people, Chinese people, you know, uh, North American uh, aboriginals are, you know, or are they making fun of our attitudes toward these, towards these things? And sometimes that very fine difference gets lost in, in the telling of, 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 of a joke because people perceive things through a very specific lens these days where they're so ready to be offended and attribute to you bad feelings. Uh, you know, a, a, an evil intent in, in telling some of these things. But like you said, if you go back not that long, you watch some of the old uh, old TV shows 
And, you know, uh, we've talked about this before in the, in the seventies, every, every comedian, uh, you know, from Eddie Murphy, right through to, to Ted, uh, to, um, uh, to some of our, our TV sitcoms, gay jokes were, were the stock and trade of pretty much every, every public person. Um, it was so common and, you know, it was incredibly hurtful uh, to the gay community, but it was just society had not moved on yet. Um, you know, women jokes, uh, you know, when, when you and I grew up, uh, yeah, I remember buying or probably given from a friend, I remember a book of Polish jokes, a book of Italian jokes. And they were like all the old hoary uh, jokes from probably been in circulation since the 1920s about, uh, you know, how, you know, how do you make an Italian blah, blah, blah. Um, and there'd be something stupid and offensive, you know, Mad Magazine had these sorts of things in them too, in its early days. But again, humor becomes more sophisticated. We realize, you know, ethnicity is not funny in and of itself. There may be jokes about, uh, about nationality that show national differences and attitudes that are funny because there's a grain of truth to them because it, again, reflects human nature. Um, and again, it has to be, you know, how is it meant? Is it meant, you know, not necessarily kindly, but to, uh, you know, as long as you're poking fun at yourself at the same time, we're acknowledging all of our, our, uh, our quirks and, uh, and, and uh, the differences in humanity. But it's, again, it can be a really fine line to cross. So, you know, ethnic jokes are pretty much gone now. Um, religious jokes are, you know, I remember um, um, uh, Crosby, the uh, um, Mulroney's uh, cabinet minister, making uh, a, at a dinner I was at, you know, he's been dead about five years now. But, uh, you know, so this, you know, this probably goes back 20 years. And, you know, him at a, a group of lawyers at dinner, making uh, Muslim jokes. Uh, and, you know, because he was a, he was a newfie and had his, his way of telling things. But even then you're looking, listening, going, go like, you know, that's, that's pretty racist. Um, so things, things and sensibilities change, but it hasn't changed so much that you can't talk about anything anymore. There's still things again, that are challenging and, uh, you know, and somebody's going to take offense at, but you've got to look at where the offense comes from because, you know, some people are just ready to be offended no matter what you say. Uh, that's, you know, that's absolutely true. And I think there's a difference between laughing about our differences, which doesn't put one above the other. And then there's, a, then there's laughing because like laughing at people who are different. There is a, because there is nothing wrong with talking about laughing at differences between cultures and, and so on. Um, as long as they're on an even plane, as long as you're not saying one is superior to the other, because you know what, sometimes our differences you know, I'm a short guy. Some uh, sometimes I'll go out with somebody who's tall. Somebody make you know some kind of comment about, look at that, funny, short and tall. It, it am I offended? No. It's I understand that they're just laughing at the incongruity, and that that incongruity should still be something we're allowed to laugh at, allowed to explore, uh, allowed to question. It's always been a question of do you punch up or punch down. And there, we've removed a lot of the societal permissions to punch down on certain groups. Um, but as you said, there are people who will always take offense. I, 
tweeted something on my Ed the Sock account about BTS, the South Korea, the super popular South Korean oh, yeah. uh, band, um, and said, I forget the exact phrasing, but it was to the effect of, I see South Korea has finally learned the science behind creating boy bands in a lab or something like that. The lab science yeah, behind creating sure. boy bands. And somebody told me, said, Koreans aren't made in fact in, in laboratories. I said, <laughs> like this was news to you, yes? <laughs> I said, what? You're saying Koreans are made in laboratories. So that is not what that says at all. Yes, it does. You said Koreans, I said, you're missing the context of the joke. You're missing the point of the joke. You're missing the target of the joke. You're missing the whole meaning of the joke. And you're centering on something absurd. Like who would joke that Koreans were all made in laboratories? I mean, what's, what, in what world is that a joke? Um, but this young woman proceeded to lecture me about my privilege and my racism and tell me that I need to stop arguing with her and learn from my racism, listen and learn. Listen and learn, I will have you know, from a privileged uh, early 20s white woman. You know, if I'm going to listen and learn, it ain't from her. I'm going to listen Maybe and someone learn. with a little more experience. And maybe somebody who is Korean or somebody who is of a different ethnic group who will make me see how, well, you didn't mean anything by that, but it could be taken this way. Um, and you're not, you don't have the, the cultural experience because you're not part of that group to understand. You know, it's like I've told on this show before that I met a colleague's wife uh, once, a woman who was a mixer with families and so on, found her to be brilliant and said to him the next day, you know, your wife is brilliant. I said, she's so articulate. And he stopped. And he said, you know that that's an insult to black people, right? Because she was black. I said, no, I had no idea. <laughs> I had, he said, people use articulate as an insult to black people as if saying that they're somehow different from other black people because black people aren't articulate. And I said, well, I have no knowledge of this whatsoever. And my comment- I'm saying she's articulate in a general sense of humanity. Not, yeah. I'm not saying, boy, she's articulate for a black woman. Yeah. Now I that's said, a different meaning. Yeah, I, I said- uh, you know, I had, and he was fine about it because he knew where I was coming from. I said, I was making a compliment, but ha not having that background, not knowing what kind of slurs or comments are made against black people, um, the broad range of them, I tripped into something that I meant nothing about. But being informed gave me a sense that, okay, so you know what? I don't say that anymore because there's a reason for its sensitivity. I get it. Um, and I don't think that you show what a free thinker you are by knowing that there's a sensitivity and deliberately stepping on it. Yeah, That's just that bullying. Anyway. That's just, you know, you being an ass uh, doing that. Um, I think that we have to recognize when we know there's a sensitivity and uh, if we're going to be decent to people, you just stay away from that. How hard is it to stay away from certain jokes? How hard is it to stay away from certain expressions? How hard is it to be conscious of a different pronoun? How, how hard is it really in the world? I mean, some people resent anyone trying to get them to change the way they do anything. 
because telling them that they need to do something different is in a way implying that they've been doing something wrong. And people hate the idea that someone tells them they're doing something wrong. And so they will continue to do the wrong thing because they don't like being told they did something wrong. I mean, there's no logic there, but it, it's human nature. And uh, it's really not that difficult to provide fair accommodation for understandable sensitivities. Then there's those like the, the woman who told me that I was saying Koreans were made in laboratories. I don't have to, I don't feel the need to accommodate her sensibilities because she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's looking for a way to be offended. Yeah. And, you know, and I was raised, you know, <clears throat> you know, in a, in a different time, different sensibilities. I was raised, you know, in a, in a very white community and a very white family. Uh, you know, my high school in Burlington uh, was like 2000 kids and we had one black guy and two Ch uh, Chinese girls. Uh, and that was it. Everyone else was, I mean, we, we thought Catholics were exotic in, in my high school. Um, you know, that's how white it was. And then, you know, I moved to Toronto and all of a sudden it's very, very different. Uh, people on the street look very, very different. I mean, there are people on the street, uh, you know, in Burlington, you know, unless you're in a car, you know, they're calling the cops on you. Um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, I realized that when I grew up, it was with a sense of being respectful to other people. Uh, that you don't hurt people feelings uh, on purpose. Um, you know, there's an intentionality to, to, in a, you know, uh, and an awareness, the consciousness of being decent to other people. So if you know, someone is, you know, sensitive about something or, uh, you, you just don't, you don't lean on those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, and I was raised in a very open-minded and, uh, you know, uh, even though the, uh, you know, the, the community was very monochromatic. You know, my father was a sports writer and, and, uh, and a journalist and had friends from, from all races, all religions. Um, and, you know, I was exposed to all these things at, at a fairly early age, and I just saw them as people. Um, uh, and so, you know, it's not that difficult for me to transition to a more sensitive time because I was always sensitive to people. Uh, you know, and if I'm being offensive to someone, it's because I intend to be offensive to them. And it's usually because they've done something offensive. Um, but, you know, again, there's that intentionality behind it. But I live my life trying to accommodate and be sensitive, but also, you know, contextualize things. You know, there's lots of times when someone says something to me and I look at it, you know, Twitter is great for this because you never get any nuance. You know, someone says something to me and you go, how do they mean that? were they meaning it unkindly were they were they laughing along with my joke were they just sort of or were they uh, you know trying to you know try to try to stick it to me and you know and i i'm probably you know one one of the few people on twitter who will try to look for context in a tweet i'll i'll look at their i'll look at someone's profile to see whether or not they their their profile is offensive to uh, you know uh, and that uh, they would take up exception to things that i would say or if they're looking for a fight or you know i try to I try to put myself in their shoes when they're saying something that's a little amb ambiguous at trying to figure it out because again, I'm sensitive to people's feelings. And on those couple occasions, when I said something that could be taken the wrong way, you know, sometimes you write something like, like you did with BTS, you write something and you don't necessarily realize someone, no matter how small a minority will read it and take it a completely different way than you meant it that you never even thought could be taken that way because it just doesn't it it just doesn't, it doesn't make any compute. sense yeah oh, exactly you're looking at going like well that's that's not funny why would anyone think that um you know, on those kinds of occasions you're like uh you know 
maybe I could have worded that better or, or I can see how, or, or I hit some, I walked into something. Sometimes I walk into, uh, you know, social media maelstroms that, uh, you know, I don't even know are going on. And I say something completely unrelated and all of a sudden someone connects two unconnectable dots and says, you're part of this thing. I'm like, I don't, I've never even heard of this thing. And no, I, I would never, I would never ally myself with, with that train of thought, but people, you know, People are fast on social media and they're, they're, they're fast to misconstrue, see it through their lens and, uh, and, and jump on and pile on the monkey. I mean, one of the most uh, popular or unpopular uh, tweets I made at the very beginning of the pandemic, I made one about um, uh, that, uh, that, that breaking your, baking your own sourdough bread is the, uh, the COVID version of World War II victory gardens. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah just like a throwaway sort of thing. Yeah. I think like, well, what, you know, what do people do in time of crisis? Well, they're baking bread instead of, you know, growing vegetables in their backyard. Right. right. And I had maybe 2000 responses to it. 80% of them were negative. What <laughs> like, was the oh, nature of the complaint? <laughs> well, that, you know, that I'm making fun of people who are, are, are making their own bread and that, uh, that I'm not, uh, I'm not down with people who are trying to be self-sufficient and <sighs> I know oh, it's my privilege that I can go buy bread and it's like, Oh my God, really? It's like, I don't even eat, you know, I don't even like sourdough bread. I don't even have a garden. I'm just, you know, it was just a comment. And all of a sudden it, it got passed around, I guess, to, to big sourdough. Um, the, uh, the, there's, <laughs> there, there must be some sort of a, a, an interest group for, for sourdough bread aficionados that uh, I, you know, I got tuned into and next thing you know, I'm getting hate mail from all these home bread makers. Uh, <laughs> like, really? This is, this is, this is what you're, you're mad about. <laughs> But, but social media moves so fast and, it, you know, there's, it's a real pile on kind of, uh, kind of effect and, you know, outrage as Facebook has, uh, has uh, not told everyone, but apparently it's in all of their internal memos, you know, outrage and anger is, is sells much better than, than, than understanding and, and, and being a tolerant. So, right. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the, that's the current that you have to swim against whenever you say something that could be even remotely considered to be, uh, uh, over the line. Well, everybody sees lines in different places and some people deliberately move goalposts so that they can call attention to themselves. I mean, they show what a pure thinker they are by exposing somebody else's reg regressive, uh, thinking. And so in many cases, it's, it's about them looking for attention and validation and approbation. And instead of really being about trying to fight for any kind of justice or awareness. Um, but we, let's move on. Let's move yeah. on to another, another We've topic. beaten that sourdough to death. Yes, we have. Um, interesting thing, we're talking about people's rights and so on. This bill that's being proposed you know, in Ontario, uh, the workers' right to disconnect. The, the right of the employee to stop uh, receiving, reading, responding to electronic correspondence after work. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah, it, it, and it, it's strange because it's coming from the Ford government. You don't really think of that as, uh, you know, I guess they needed a win on the workers uh, side of things uh, with the upcoming election because you wouldn't think that would come out of 
their sort of ideology. And the yeah. idea was, you know, it, it's enshrining the workers' right to disconnect uh, for uh, with employers with more than 25 employees required to have in place a written policy detailing an employer's right to not respond to emails, phone calls, video calls, sending or reviewing other messages um, after hours. Um, and yeah, I, I, like you, um, you know, I've, I've been, boy, I've, I've been self-employed, you know, or worked as a consultant contractor, whatever, for so long. Uh, I just, you know, I'm very jealous of my, my private time and I don't feel obliged to, you know, I always have the ringer off on my phone. Uh, so I don't constantly get that little ding, ding, ding of messages coming in. And I've just, I've just found my, my spiritual brother, because I'm the only person that I know now, other than you, who has my ringer off has uh, my phone makes no sounds. I check it when I go to check it. It doesn't tell me to check it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you know, part of it is maybe you know our 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 age because we didn't grow up with cell phones, and uh, it you know my son's cell phone sits on the dining room table uh, when he's you know watching TV or something, and it is going off constantly because his friends are always texting him or WhatsApping him or Instagramming him or something. Um, so it's constantly it just sits there and dings and vibrates it, and he does he doesn't answer it much to his credit. He doesn't jump up and, and look at it, but I you know I. I've learned to turn off and I set limits with my, well, my, 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 not my employers, but my contractors, because, you know, after a certain hour, unless it's deathly uh, important and very few things in life are, um, it'll wait till the morning. Cause I used to have, when I had a law practice, I had office hours. I was in there at nine. I left by six and I didn't want to hear anything after that. Um, and, uh, you know, it would be there, uh, you know, the, the next morning, if you wanted to get me, I'd check my voicemail because yep. I couldn't bring that stuff home with me every day. Otherwise you work around the clock. So yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a good thing, but I mean, there's a whole bunch of entrepreneurs and contract people and, uh, you know, creative people. I mean, you, you know, you've been a creative person your entire life, you know, there's no clock to punch. Um, you never know when you get an idea, inspiration, or a deadline, and you're working through the night, or you got you know a a client who's uh, you know always uh, changing the specs on something, and they and they expect immediate response. So you know it is it can be pretty soul destroying, but it is also kind of part of the modern world, unfortunately. I agree. I mean, I turn I put my phone away at eight o'clock every night, and I may check at ten o'clock to see if anything urgent has come through. And if it hasn't, then I don't check again until the morning because I figure after 10 o'clock, what's going to come through, uh, you know, realistically. Uh, I, I'm not engaged in life-saving activities. So there's, uh, I, this is something I've recently done. I've just recently decided 8 o'clock is a cutoff time for work and for uh, work correspondence. Now, does that mean that I never go beyond that? Well, no, because I'm working on a, uh, a contract where something uh, due to circumstances, a uh, deadline had to be met and it was, uh, there was not enough time given to accommodate it in regular business hours. So I worked in the evening and I got it done. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't reject things completely, but as a matter of habit, I want to stop working at eight o'clock. And I've told people who I work with that uh, I turn my phone off like I put my phone away, they can't understand it. They can't, they can't fathom being away from your phone and not having the little ding on to tell you, like I am, it can be addictive. 
constantly looking for that stimulation, constantly looking for that connection, that contact with another person. Um, and so you respond to every little ding and, and bell. And, you know, most of the time it's nothing. It's, it's, it's spam or it's, it's some update from an entertainment site that you signed on to or something, somebody nicely signed you on to. Um, but uh, that's my choice. Um, when I was working at CBC, there's no way I could have turned my phone off at eight o'clock because the person in charge of the show was a lunatic and had no respect for boundaries or limitations and would send emails all times of day and expect responses immediately uh, or near to immediately. So, uh, but what would I, you know, what would I do? You know, what do you do if you're in a, in the CBC, I could have, I, if there's a rule like the one they're proposing, I could have gone to HR. But you know what? I, I was on a contract. They say they can't take uh, retribution against you. But a lot of people are contract workers these days. And they don't have to tell you why they don't renew your contract. They're not going to tell you it's because you said you wouldn't take an email after, after hours. Um, they just let you go in hopes of the, getting the next person who will not put limits on yeah, when someone who is plugged in 24 seven. Yeah. yeah it, it's, and you'll never be able to prove that it was because you established limits. I just think this is a toothless, senseless policy. Like if you want to get workers on side, how about changing your position on sick days, paid sick days? How about that? Something that will make a tremendous difference in people's lives. Not this business about right to disconnect, which is one of those things that could be, it'll be a, a right on the books, but one, that people are loath to exercise because in practical reality, you just can't. Well, and what kind of jobs too are they that uh, where, where you could exercise that kind of a right? But, uh, you know, it, clearly, you know, it's, it's, so it's for, for bigger com companies, you know, more than 25 employees, but there are all kinds of jobs. You know, if you're, if you're a cashier um, or a, um, you know, a factory worker, You've got a shift, you know. You 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 know. You're, if you're putting doors on uh, on on minivans at the at the Ford plant, they're not going to contact you after your shift's over because I mean, what are you going to do? You're going you know you're going to put doors on on cars at home. I mean, they might try to call you in, but you know if you just say my you know my phone wasn't off or I didn't get the call, then then you know you, you know show up for your shift the next day. So there, you know there's a, there are the kind of workers which can work 24 seven. And like you, I've had people who've been not very, it's not that they're disrespectful of my time is they're just disrespectful of their own time. They just don't have a clock in their, in, in their possession. I don't think because they have ideas at, you know, I, I've had emails from people I've worked with from at like two in the morning um, or, and uh, you know, with long stuff that they've obviously been up thinking about. And I can that's understand the, that's the worst time to write and send an oh, email. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes it's, you read them, go like, "What the hell yeah, are you and, talking about?" If you, think, if you if you write an email at two in the morning, don't send it. Wake yeah. up, read the email again. Yeah. <laughs> and and realistically, what am I going to do with an email at two in the morning? Sure, I'm going to see it first thing in the morning, I guess. Uh, but uh, you know, for someone who's got their little dingly thing on their phone, you know, the last thing you want is your phone in your bedroom going off at two in the morning with some email from uh, from a coworker or a boss who uh, you know had just had a brilliant idea. And I've also worked for companies that are multinational. Uh, I worked for oh for years for a company that had uh, uh, interests over in uh, in China, and twelve hour time distance difference. So they're up when you're asleep. 
Um, and uh, so you're constantly working on a 24 hour clock. So that's a very different kind of, of, of situation. Um, but more and more people are finding themselves in companies that are decentralized. You know, the worst ones are, you know, you've got, uh, you know, offices in London, England, you've got offices on the, uh, on the West Coast, and then you've got maybe some offices in Asia. So you are, are a 24 hour clock. Absolutely. Everyone is up working legitimately, even if they're working nine to five where they are, it is not nine to five for you. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's really the discipline and the expectation of saying, you know what, I've got private time, I'm not available. Um, my weekends, I'm going to be you know, I, uh, for, for ages, you know, I've had a, I've had a cottage and I have no phone up there. You know, I bring my cell phone up there, but it goes on my, my, my desk, uh, my, my, uh, my dresser up there and doesn't leave for most of the, the weekend. I don't look at it and I'm just offline. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, it, it's great to be unavailable and people who've grown up never being unavailable just don't understand what it's like because it is you know your brain does get wired to that to need that fix i mean it's that pavlovian response where you know you, you, i got a message i gotta read it i gotta read it right now what is it and he's like oh it's a it's a coupon from wayfair well that was worth uh, dropping yeah. everything i did and uh, you know run over there turn on my phone and look at it and but people keep on doing that and it's a real discipline that you know it, it maybe and maybe it's a generational thing too not having been raised with it uh you know i when i was when i was 18 years old i backpacked through europe for seven weeks um and no cell phones uh you know if you wanted to make a phone call you had to go to a train station in in berlin or in uh, in paris and make a phone call you know now when i travel without my family I've got a plan and I can just pick up the phone and call them and I can surf the web and check my emails and all the rest. But, you know, for seven weeks, uh, with the exception of maybe two letters that I got at a postal drop, I never heard from my family. Um, and that's just an experience that, that people just cannot have anymore, unless you're going to, you know, the deepest uh, parts of the Amazon where they probably still have Wi-Fi. Yeah. If the, the world is not better because we're, we're constantly alert. Um, and tied in. And I think it is generational. I remember, you know, I was young when I was running a, a small TV station and the station hours were 3 p.m. to 11. And I uh, wouldn't expect to hear anything. Maybe one o'clock the next day, if somebody had something they really needed to tell me. Um, but mostly I, I came in at three. I got my little messages that had been written down by the receptionist. Um, and I responded to them and none of it, you know, they came in in the morning, but none of it, there was nothing that was on fire. And I was, so I was used to, when I went home, that was off, you know, that was, I did, I mean, I constantly, you know, creative, you're constantly thinking, but that's different creating because you feel a creative instinct or creative urge, which gives you a sense of satisfaction is different from feeling like you're on call. And you can never really, you know, shut your eyes and rest because what if you miss something? Yeah. And uh, so it just all of which yeah. is to say that I think that this legislation is a waste of time. Yeah. And very, like I say, very few of us are transplant surgeons who, uh, you know, have to be on call uh, all the time. And the rest of the time, it's just uh, it's just an annoyance. But, uh, you know, again, you know, for the sector that this supposedly applies to. Um, I don't see it really applying to them. And for the rest of us who work 
contract or freelance or or are consultants uh you know that isn't the world that uh, that we've been forced to live in either so I, i'm not quite sure who this is you know the six people that this is going to apply to yeah uh this is it it just goes to show that the ford government its priorities are in a very strange place um but that's our con that's our show for today it is um i hope people have uh, gained something from it we he, we when we when we miss a week we hear from people we do ask, it's nice yeah. that people miss us yeah they ask where you know where are you and they ask you know are you going to comment on x y or z so i'm glad we're able to bring that to people i hope they continue to enjoy our discussions um neither one of us claims to be an expert in anything in anything no. yeah um we just try to be reasonably informed and have reasonable opinions based on that reasonable information and uh, we uh, appreciate that uh, people listen to us. So we'll keep doing this as long as they're there. We will. And we, uh, and we won't email you in the middle of the night either. No, not at all. Never. Um, Stephen, thank you. Stephen, thank you. Stephen Lawton's can be found on Twitter at Stephen Lawton's. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. Uh, my work can be found at newmusicnation.ca, where you will discover... Uh, a host of very talented Canadian musicians from various genres. You'll see them in their music videos, which are very well produced and very entertaining. Uh, and there are entertaining VJs there as well. It feels like uh, classic much music all over again. And that's newmusicnation.ca. And that's it for us. Stephen, we'll talk next week. We will talk next week. Okay. That is Stephen Lawton's. I am Stephen Kersner. And this has been Stephen and Stephen.